Well, 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 welcome to the mayhem Dick and Lloyd mayhem Media mayhem Marketing mayhem You might love it, you might hate it It's my favorite freaking show Come on in, hey golfers Have we got a treat for you Our guest on this episode is legendary golf pro and tournament organizer Gene Barlow Gene got started at Kansas City Club, and he's got stories of hanging with Tom Watson, starting what became Shadow Glen Course, and you'll find out how Gene and company came up with the term, bogey is your friend. I know you've used that. If you're a golf pro, a golf player, or just someone who likes good stories, this is for you. We'll get to the... Uh, 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 hang on a minute. L- let me get this. Hello? Hey, champ. It's Buzz Martini. Oh, yeah, Buzz, the uh, sales guy for our podcast. What, what's going on? Yeah, I'm here at the gym working out on an uh, elliptical machine. Oh, give it a fit. Anyway, yeah. um, hey, we got some results back on those DNA tests you wanted to take last oh. night. Oh. Uh, I was looking them over. I don't, I, I don't think that's going to help us on that diversity angle you guys were hoping for. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, we're just a couple old white guys doing this. We thought maybe if there was some diversity in our backgrounds, we could use that to our advantage in promoting to particular audiences. Uh, uh, what, what did you find? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, I don't think it's going to work out. Oh, really? So, uh, I, I mean, Lloyd got his test back. Yeah. Kind of predictable. Okay. Um, what was it? You know, ma- mainly Northern European. There was some English, Irish, Scottish. Okay, all right. A little German. Wow, okay. Yeah. Uh, a touch of Mediterranean in there. Mm. He had some American native. Oh, yeah. Uh, which was not... Uh. You know, not a surprise, because he said he had uh, yeah. folks in Oklahoma. Okay, um, yeah, sure. Part of Sage. Mm-hmm. Oh, but that's okay. all in there, and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's fairly typical. Well, so, uh, that's good. I don't think that's going to help us. Oh, I mean, it's not. Well, yours yours was very interesting. What, what do you mean? N- again, not helpful. Very interesting. Interesting. Well, you, you, you kind of buried the needle, champ. What do you mean by that? Yeah, there's this category. Uh, well, just, I'll give you a a hint. What? what? Uh, this category, you are in the same category as the Ajax Knight. What? The Man from Glad. What? Mr. Clean. Mr. Clean? Casper the Ghost and the Coca-Cola Polar Bears. What the heck is this? (sighs) Yeah, afraid so, champ. What? Uh, nothing there that's going to help us. But there's an upside to that. I mean... How? You do qualify for a certain government program. Yeah. Uh, there was a government program that uh, I think was passed in 1927. Oh, what? Where you have priority for... uh, Yeah. Priority on the purchasing rights of mayonnaise, American cheese, and white bread. Mayonnaise? Yeah. And that's that. I mean, you got that going for you. <laughs> also, you uh, oh. you have the first rights of refusal on NASCAR tickets uh-huh. and um, Mountain Dew. What? Uh-huh. Diet what? and regular. D- that's right. Mountain Dew. So you got that going for you. Oh. But sorry, couldn't be more help with the uh, Dick and Lloyd's media mark. Yeah. Marketing. Well, yeah. whatever. Yeah. It is. Well. Anyway, I'll talk to you later, Chan. Oh boy. Hey, Loy. Hey, uh, look at this place. The uh, Country Club Bank Mission Hills gave us a little space to do our podcast today. That's right. They're really nice folks at Country Club Bank. and It's nice of them to give us this cool office. I think I'm going to hang around here a while and just kind of tell just look important. what to do. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. Good deal. Hey, uh, uh, tell me about this man across the table from us here. Well, this is Gene Barlow. I think anybody in the golfing world in Kansas City knows Gene. He is a a pretty big dog in that world. He was a a well-known teaching pro, been involved in golf courses, and runs great golf tournaments all around town for all kinds of different businesses. And we got, I'm sure Gene has a lot of great stories for us well he does a lot of things too for the business community also that's great gene hi there hello good morning glad you're with us here today uh what a career the golf world you've grown up in huh i've been pretty lucky moved up here from little rock arkansas in 1979 and 
took a job at, as a teaching assistant for Stan Thirsk at Kansas City Country Club. Okay. The great Stan Thirsk. Wow. What a man. He was a Stan the man. Yes, he was. Tell us a little bit about who that guy was before we get into the great Gene Barlow story. Talk well, about your uh, first boss you know, here. Stan was uh, just an icon and, and a pillar in the community and just an exquisite gentleman. Mm-hmm. And you know they don't—they really don't make those guys anymore. <laughs> That's I right. I mean, it's pretty much a business now, and everybody's going after everybody. But Stan was was a pure gentleman, and uh, he got along with everybody. Just a great guy. But we always uh, like to say that uh, nobody liked to play golf more than Stan Thirsk. Okay. Yeah. He loved to be on the golf course. A little quick little uh, snippet. One year, the uh, country club decided to come in and renovate the golf shop in the uh, south side of the uh, clubhouse. And they came in one day and, and uh, the old golf shop at Kansas City Country Club was a little Cracker Jack box. Mm-hmm. And we had it stuffed full of merchandise. And they came in and asked Stan one day, they, they said, uh, Stan, here's what we're gonna do with the golf shop, we're gonna expand it. But as far as your office space, what would you like us to do with that? And in his own way, Stan said, baby, my office is right out there and pointed to the golf course. <laughs> and he did could have cared less about an office space indoors. He operated outside. Yes, he did. He, he was a humble man, too. I remember I had the privilege of having some lessons from Stan. I don't want that to reflect negatively upon his <laughs> yeah, teaching okay. I, I've seen his golf, and uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's right. some, some ghosts of it left there. I but think. he spent the first lesson telling me about how to cover up my neck and my ears, and the, the, you know, because of the sun. And, okay. Uh, you know, I mean, he was just that kind of guy, very considerate, thoughtful guy. So he's kind of molded. The, uh, the Gene Barlow that I know because uh, you're kind of cut of that cloth, I think. At least that's uh, that's really everybody's impression of you. I think you are a, uh, a kind of a tribute to Stan and his style. Tell us a little bit about where you went from there with Stan. Well, from there, uh, we went out into the real world mm-hmm. and I uh, took the uh, director of golf position at Deer Creek. Mm-hmm. Golf club out in Overland Park, and, and that was a brand new course. They were yeah. just in the stages of just uh, doing the uh, final dirt work. They had not even put any of the grassing in or seeding or anything like that. It was just uh, basically move the bulk of the earthwork, and then they did do the last part of it, the shaping. And I was in on that with them. Um, so you contribute to the design of that course in some way. Well, very little. You know, I had some input, but it was Bob Jones the second who was doing it, and he mm-hmm. didn't really listen to much of anything except mm-hmm. what he wanted yeah. to do. Yeah. Uh-huh. He had his way of doing it, and that was it. Uh, well, they've had a chance to redo it about every time it rains, so. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, what struck me was the number of bunkers on a municipal golf course that they were going to put in, and the way they were designed was, you know, the average guy is going to go out there and shoot like 90 during the course of the day on a normal golf course in Kansas City, but you take that thing, they're going to go shoot 120. Mm-hmm. So we had to, to quickly understand how to move people around a golf course, uh, having it been so difficult. But one of the things we did was that at that time, back in 1989, golf events were being run basically at private golf courses that would allow outside groups to come in on a Monday when the club was closed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, some of the clubs would see that as a little extra revenue that they could generate so that they could do some projects in the future like maybe, you know, take care of their cart paths or do some different things with greens and things like that, which normally maybe they wouldn't be able to do. But we took that concept out of there and we started doing it on Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. And then we allowed groups to come out like on the weekend at certain times, uh, especially when it got hot during the summer. Uh, and we felt like that was a way to offset not being able to run as many rounds of golf as we thought we should be able to run mm-hmm. to generate revenue uh, because the rounds were going to take like five or six hours. Just because uh, take of the complexity long. of the course and how difficult That's correct. Yeah. Yes, that's absolutely correct. So. That's how we did that, and we we got upwards of running like double shotguns 
on Monday and Tuesday for like 144 per session. So we tee off at 7.30 in the morning, get them around in five hours, and then they turn around and tee off at 1.30 in the afternoon with another group. And we just had a process that we put together. After doing that for about two or three years, all of a sudden I got into a situation where we really weren't hands-on. It was pretty much the way that it is today. It's pretty much that the golf pros are doing so many golf events that they pretty much got to have a cookie cutter approach to it. Mm -hmm. And so they're all doing the same things and offering the same thing, which is easy for the golf course to do. And uh, we just, I just couldn't uh, interact with the committees anymore. It was more like, okay, here's your contract. This is the deposit we need. Here's the things we can do for you. And at these particular times, this is the information we need for you to put your event together. And at Kansas City Country Club, you know, it was just all hands-on with an event. I mean, we were out there with the members, we were out there with the different groups, we were out there with their guests, and we were doing a lot, not only leading up to the event, but that particular day, we were doing a lot of stuff. And we were, all the staff was out on the golf course, you were talking to the people that were playing, and it was a different atmosphere than it would be if you were just doing going out to a Monday event mm -hmm. where you're just sent out there and you, you play your scramble and you're out there for, you know, for our events it's four and a half hours, but for a lot of these things it's like six and seven hours and you're just stuck out there. So decided that not enough time to give golf lessons, which is what we love to do, absolutely no playing any golf and not being to interact with the golf tournaments led us to decide that we were going to go out and do this on our own. Mm -hmm. We had built up a clientele at Deer Creek where we knew the people and we knew that we could do well on the corporate side and we could do on the uh, charitable fundraising side also. And so did that and started that up in 1995 and you know we've pretty much been doing it ever since. And what is the name of that company you put together? Grand Slam Golf. Okay. And you're working kind of nationwide with things on this, aren't you? Well, we, we have. Uh, we've gone out and done some things in Phoenix, and we've done some things in St. Louis, and uh, we haven't done anything in California, and we've done some stuff down in Texas, um, but mostly consolidated to the Kansas City area mm -hmm. because it's just easier for us to operate that way. I mean, the, the biggest event we've done is that in 2008, we brought in the uh, dot-com tour which was the secondary tour, uh, I was sort of familiar with that type of an event because in 1989, that was the start of the BGA Tour actually having a secondary tour itself, which was called the Ben Hogan Tour. And we were one of the original golf courses that brought in one of those events. And that first year, I mean, we had guys like Tom Lehman, and uh, Jeff Maggart, Tom Pernice played, John Daly played. There were 20 or 30 guys that ended up like 10 years later being like in the top 50 in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a great start to what we were doing. So we hadn't had one of those events in Kansas City for quite a while and, and I knew it was gonna be a bear to bring in because those things take a lot of energy and a lot of support from the community and it being a first time but we decided we, that's what we wanted to do, and we brought it in here. We signed a contract, had a lot of, of sponsorship commitments mm -hmm. uh, before we did that. But then all of a sudden, here comes the, the fall and winter of 2008. We had already signed a contract, and our commitments went from about 400000 to zero, about as quick as the market dropped. Okay. Yeah. I remember that yep. was yep. the, it was, uh, that's what made that so difficult. Oh yeah, oh, it made yeah. it it was just it was incredible because it were the, the you know some of the stories I could share with you is that we got into like calling people in September late September and them telling us that okay, well we're just formulating our budgets. I want you to call me back about the middle of November and we'll get in here and we'll start finalizing things. Well, by the middle of November, you know, at that point, the stock market looked like it was, it lost like 2,000 points and just like getting worse and worse and worse. So that went from come see me and call me to not even getting a phone call back. Mm. 
I, I think a lot of people forget the weird mentality that happens as a response to some tragic loss of the stock market because companies were literally, they didn't want to appear to be supporting golf because that was such triviality in these serious times of you well, know, absolutely. Financial yeah. crisis. The, they were afraid that this would reflect negatively on them. So you had a heck of a challenge there. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the senator from Massachusetts even came out and made a statement that, you know, he had seen where uh, he started talking about professionals and sponsorships to professional events, and he couldn't see how anybody could make a commitment to a professional event at this stage in the economy mm -hmm. with this disaster they, going they on. Were sh he, he was shaming people. Absolutely. It was ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it was pointed directly at the tour. And wow. so all of a sudden, you know, the commissioner had to, they, their posture changed pretty quickly. And so that, that was a really difficult deal. We, we had a tough time. I remember that, and you had you'd put together an affinity group of people here to try to raise awareness and money for it. You, right. you well, began that. And yeah, and in doing that, we actually had to, because of the time commitment we had to spend on that, we, went, we, we had built our business up to doing 30 events, pretty good size events, which uh, took a lot of time. But we actually had to call that down to 10 in order to meet our commitment with the tour event. Mm, okay. and that, that's how much time it took. Wow. What was the timetable on building things back again for you? You know, it took a couple of years for us to actually get built back up, uh, but uh, we learned a lot from the event and being able to, to add little extra things that are done on the tour because they uh, most of the time have more money to spend mm -hmm, yeah. so that they can do these things. but. Uh, that allowed us to help events, especially corporations, kind of instill some of these things into their event, events, which make it just a little bit more special. Now, this tournament that's still, that has just recently moved, is this a direct lineage from that tournament that you brought in? That's correct. Yeah, okay. That's correct. So it's still, 10 years later, the effort you made to bring that tournament in, we can still look at that as a, as a direct... Uh, right result of your efforts there so yeah well thank you yeah that Gina's, was a nice you're to be nice lauded fun. for that that's a big deal because yeah. that's a big part of kansas city right now yeah that's good. having that thing so you so you already really knew the ropes you'd thrown so many tournaments you were knocking them out like crazy at deer creek getting all your chops there figuring out how do you make a tournament efficient how do you make it fun how do you make it special and then you worked with this extreme pressure with the much bigger scale with this uh, PGA tournament. What kind of things have you incorporated into the tournaments that you put on for foundations and businesses that are a result of all that experience? Because surely nobody else in town has produced as many golf tournaments as, as Gene Barlow. What kind of things do you do that um, differentiate people's tournaments? Well, the first thing that we noticed is the time that it takes to get around and play a lot of these things. And so that's it's was, ridiculous sometimes. It's 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 pretty hard. Yeah. So the question becomes why is it taking so long? Uh, so you go out and you identify the different aspects of what that entails and then, you know, you conceptualize as is how to lessen the time parameters given those variables. Mm -hmm. People really don't understand it very much, but you know, if, if you're out there and you're a player, and let's just say, for instance, you don't play very much, well, your pace of play is gonna be slow because you're really not walking very fast. Most people don't think that golf is an exercise. They just think you're out there driving in a cart and you're just drinking beer and you're just having fun. But if you're doing it the right way, I mean, you are, your, your pace that you're walking to get from maybe the cart to the green or the green to the cart or from the cart to the tee and the tee to the cart, just in your, all your shots, I mean, the, the difference could be like, like three or four or five seconds. So you add that up with like maybe 100 shots. That's a lot of time per mm -hmm. person. Yeah. And then multiply it by four. Yeah. 
So that was some of the education that we got at Deer Creek because we were like out there timing groups and we were trying to find out why people were playing as slow as they were so that we could help them get around the golf course better. Mm. Now, did Gene invent the term bogey is your friend? He might have. <laughs> uh, actually, we did. It was uh, We started out with par, actually. Oh, okay. So par was your friend. So that was one of the things that we decided that about eight-tenths of the people that are playing in these things are either play like two or three times a year or they are guests of a corporation that has decided to uh, support the group mm -hmm. with a sponsorship but they can't find anybody to play. That's right. The day we did this, we implemented this, the, the event only had about oh, 50 or 60 players but they did have the golf course and the weather was not very good. So we, we tried to help people understand as they were playing that hey, you don't have to hit every shot because we had found in the past that there were people that were out there hitting the ball like maybe 10 times a hole. And it, you know, this is how you start going like seven hours. Even in a scramble, you know, they were just like out there, there was a group that didn't understand. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> we, we, we got in there and we, we said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna try this because I knew the guy that was running a deal and he thought it was kind of a, kind of a strange idea, but he thought, you know what, maybe it, maybe it might work. But the whole deal is that you don't have to kill yourself when you're out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you only hit like up to par and then you can pick up and you're not all worn out after nine holes. Okay, so the funny thing was is that at towards the end of the round, we were getting into like like three, four holes to go and it was working. We were, they were making great time. But I went into the clubhouse and there were actually like eight players that I knew that were playing in the event that were in the clubhouse and they were ordering a beer. And I go, you guys already finished? And they go, oh no, we, we, we just penciled in par on the last two holes, we've had enough. <laughs> so that's, so then we knew we had it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We knew it was gonna work. So then it was just a matter of whether it was gonna be par or whether it was gonna be bogey. So now you're whacking off that time frame. Yes. You're knocking down minutes. Yeah, sure. And uh, yeah. I mean, if it's a four person scramble, the winning score is going to be 12, 14 under par. If you've got groups out there that are taking tens, right? What's the use? I mean, it <laughs> right. makes so much sense. <laughs> and, and now it's become kind of a standard play, hadn't it? With oh yeah, yeah. And you you, you actually started course. that, yeah. Yeah, every golf course will go have that implemented into their uh, system because uh, it works. It works for everybody. So, like you say, it doesn't bother the teams that are playing that play well and want to compete right but it does help the teams that are just out there that are kind of struggling to get through the thing because they think they're helping out uh, their corporate partner or they're helping out whatever the, the charity might be mm -hmm. yeah right and it's it's a social thing for so many of the people who play and, and right. they they might be completely terrible but it doesn't matter dick wilson yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> I have my ups and downs days, yes. Okay. Thank heavens for scrambles. Talk to me about some of those stories you've got, some of the pros you've hung out with, or some of the stories of managing the course and things like that that may surprise people. Uh, you know what, the, the best story that uh, we have is that uh, at Kansas City Country Club, uh, when Labor Day came up, people just stopped playing golf. Mm -hmm. The hunting season was coming up. A lot of people went up to Mound City to hunt ducks or they went out to uh, western Kansas. And so they were in a hunting mode. They weren't in a golfing mode. But that is the time that the tour really didn't have a lot of events going on. And so Tom Watson would stay around the club and he would practice every day. And of course, Stan wasn't going to stay in the pro shop. Mm -hmm. he, was, he was going out and he yeah. practiced and we played. So there was a standing game every day at 10 o'clock uh, with Stan, myself, Tom Watson, and uh, Dr. Terry Corrand. And sometimes there were a couple of other guys that would play also. It'd be like Rob Thompson and there would, would be Fred Wolferman mm -hmm. would sometimes play. So we would go out and we'd start at 10 because it'd start getting cold. You know, we wanted to get off the golf course by 2.30, 3 o'clock mm -hmm. at the latest. Okay. We usually got off at 2, but Stan always said that, hey, after 2 o'clock, starting November 1, 
the weather is going to get bad after two o'clock. The temperature is going to go down, the sun goes down earlier, so we need to get off the golf course. So we would play every day. Well, uh, so here, here it comes. I can't re recall the year. I think it was like 1986 or something like that, but uh, January 1, New Year's Day, we were out at the golf course. And so it was Stan, myself, and Tom Watson, and Terry Coran, and it was, and I believe it was Rob Thompson. So we go out and play. It's like 32 degrees, and the wind's blowing about 20 miles an hour. Whoa. I mean, it is something else. But, you know, we didn't take a cart. We had caddies, and we walked. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so that was fun, and you stayed warm, and it wasn't any big deal. But then we got over to late in the day, and it got over to number 12, and the wind was still picking up. And number 12, if you don't know, is a par three. It's about 200 yards long. And uh, it's, it's got like a 100-foot drop-off. There's out-of-bounds on the left. There's a creek on the right. And there's also a cart path that runs down the, between the creek and the greenside bunkers. So if you were just outside those bunkers a little bit and you happened to hit that cart path, that thing was gone. And the wind, like I say, was blowing like 25 miles an hour. We were playing a game for, a, for a, a, like 25, 30 cents. It was a game that if you made a big number on a hole, you were going to lose a lot of money. So everybody was not nervous, but everybody was a little anxious about this hole. So Terry gets up and he hits a shot first, and he actually pulls out an iron and decides that he's going to lay up because he doesn't want to make a big score. Mm -hmm. So he puts the ball right out in front of the green because with the wind blowing that, that hard and with being at that elevation off the tee, I mean, anything could happen if you get the ball in the air. So he hits and he's, he's, he's on safe ground. And then Rob hits and he decides to do the same thing and he's down. So to set up the team bet for you, it was Stan Thursk and Tom Watson playing what we call a swing team of Rob, Terry, and myself. So Rob, Terry, and myself were actually three teams in that combination of switching off. So there were actually uh, three bets going on. Mm -hmm. So then I hit, and I, 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 did, I decided to do the same thing. I even hit even less. I mean, I hit it to where it was like 40 yards short of the green. Mm -hmm. But we're, we're down there, and we're, we're okay, and we're, we're not wet, we're not out of bounds. So now it's, it's Stan and Tom. So Stan gets up there, and I'm, I'm telling you what, Stan is the straightest driver off the tee of probably anyone you'll ever play golf with, ever. And he never pulled out an iron off a tee. He always hit a driver, and it didn't matter how far he had to hit it. He could take a little bit off of it, or he could like jazz it up a little bit and okay. hit it further. All right. So he hits his driver, and he, he hits it his normal deal. It's just right at the green, but it comes up short also. And so you can get an idea if he's hitting driver and he's coming up short on a 200-yard hole, you can figure out how hard the wind's yeah, blowing. Yeah, it's blowing. Oh, I mean, it is galen. So here comes Watson. He gets up there, and he's got an iron. And I figured out later on it was a one iron, but mm -hmm. I didn't know that he had that in his bag. Mm -hmm. So he gets up there, and so right off the bat, Terry Coran says, here we go, the, the touring pro laying up on a par three. And Watson just had this look in his eyes. I just couldn't believe it. He just, like, stared at him and just smiled. And he pops the ball in the tee, and he gets up there, and he does his little waggle like he does. And, I mean, this thing sounded like it was, it was hit out of, a, a, out of a shotgun. I mean, he hit that thing so flush like he always does. And it got up in the air, and everybody started, you know, we had our, our sacks on our, on our back, and we had the caddies, and everybody takes off while the ball's in the air because we know where it's going to end up. We saw it take off and it's going to land short of the green. And Watson's, he's sitting there posing at, at it. I mean, mm -hmm. he's holding the finish. <laughs> and I'm like thinking, he doesn't normally do that. <laughs> he likes it. He, he must <laughs> like this. And so we get past him where he is on the tee, and he says, boys, don't give up on that one. And so we all kind of stopped because it was still in the air. It would have been down by now. Anyway, the thing hits like about six feet in front of the hole. I mean, it was right on line. And it rolled around and it like lipped the cup and it like disappeared behind the flag stick, but we thought it went in. 
and he, he, you know, he was like raising his arms and everything. Back then, we, we played with strokes. And so his handicap was a plus four, which meant that he had to add four shots to his score. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you'd, you'd take what would be the easiest holes on the golf course, the way they were rated, and you would like to add a shot to that hole. Well, that just happened to be one of them. Okay, so Terry Coran goes nice two. And I mean, he got a look and now Stan got upset because Stan had made a hole in one over on number two like about three weeks before and he didn't think that was fair. He thought, and he, so he says, a one is a one when you make an ace. Mm -hmm, okay. You don't add scores. Uh -huh. Now this argument started about, well, okay, well then you're not playing the game right because you have a handicap and you have to add your score. The argument between the five of us, we just stood on the tee and it was like 30 minutes went by and nobody really knew it. There wasn't anybody else on the golf uh -huh, course because yeah. it was like 30 mm -hmm. degrees. So then we decided, hey, we got to play golf, we got to go in. And so we go in and it, the suing argument starts again and Stan just looked at me and said, hey, I'm tired of talking about this, I'm garnishing your wages. <laughs> <laughs> so that was New Year's Day on the 1st. Watson hits a one iron, makes a one, and it was probably the first hole in one of the year. Oh yeah, unbelievable! Sure, yeah. So I mean, I'll be I mean, it wow. was it was a fabulous uh, oh, time. Did you ever use a one iron, Gene? Yeah, yeah. We all used to use those. Hmm. We did. Yeah, I used to be able to hit the long irons uh, pretty well. So a one, two, three was a good club for me. Wow. But then That's they started impressive. coming out with the new materials that they were making clubs out of and the one iron just you know because it was had a, such a tiny club face mm -hmm. just got to be a, a tough club to hit now they've since they don't call it a one iron anymore they call it a driving iron but mm -hmm. that's pretty mm -hmm. much what it is it, and it was only called a it was a one iron because of the loft that was on the club mm -hmm. back in those days like a, a two iron would have like about 20 degree loft on it and so they'd, they'd gear a, a one iron down to about 18 to 17 degrees. Okay, all right. Which is the same loft as a typical driver, right? No, nowadays the drivers are anywhere from like eight degrees to about 12, maybe 13. So like a, a cleek or a oh, forewood right. yeah. or some kind of fairway metal mm -hmm. is fairway. generally in the, the 18, 17, 18 range okay. like that. And it's much easier to hit. How about all these rescue clubs that are out there now? What do you think about those? Those are great. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They're very easy to hit. You know, it's kind of like, uh, I believe it was Horton Smith that really designed a, a sand wedge. The, the old pro out of Missouri was a fabulous golfer, uh, but he played with Bob Jones a lot. And so he actually gave Bob Jones a sand wedge. And Bob Jones used it subsequently in one of the opens mm -hmm. that uh, helped him get out of a really tough spot. But uh, So nobody had a flange like that before? Nobody had a flange like that before. They didn't know how to use it. So then that kind of morphed into these rescue clubs. And believe it or not, I've got a club that was, that was made back in the 1930s that was actually a forerunner to a rescue club. Hmm. It has, it has a, like a big weight on the bottom of it. Hmm. Okay. Um, but those are really good clubs because they, they, the way they're balanced and they're easy for the average golfer. Sure, yeah. Play. You know, speaking of the average golfer, let's talk a minute about you've, as you say, hung out with Tom and a lot of pros and themes. What is the difference between the average golfer and the pro? I know for me, I define it as I never get two good shots in a row. I know the pros do, but what are the other things you see that these guys, that makes them the pros? Well, the biggest thing, I mean, the, the, you can really tell somebody that's going to be able to do well out on the pro circuit. If you play with them, they're going to get in a spot a couple of times around where you would think that, you know, the average player is going to make like a six or a seven or maybe even an eight. They're actually going to make like a birdie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and they'll be able to hit a shot that just you just can't even believe. I mean, Watson used to do it a lot. There was a uh, Tom Pernice used to do it a lot. Uh, there was a a kid by the name of John Sherman that was just a sure bet to go out on the tour. I mean, he did it a lot. I saw him come out of some places where you couldn't even see him. 
I mean, you'd hear the shot, uh -huh. <laughs> and you'd, you'd see it come up out of the treetops, and all of a sudden he's like 15 feet from the hole. <laughs> Tommy did that a lot. Most of Tom's shots were low shots yeah. uh, that he played, which were very difficult, especially when you got high rough, low-hanging limbs. Uh, you got to really know how to what the trajectory is, and he was fantastic at that. Um, but but that is one thing that that really uh, you can tell. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. that's a that's a big difference. Sure. But practicing, I'll tell you, I, I can give you a typical day that Tom would have at practicing. Uh, he'd come out at like uh, 7:30 in the morning. He'd have his shag bag full. He'd he'd have the guys load up the clubs on the cart, and then he'd he'd uh, grab a cup of coffee, and he'd head up to the tee, and you wouldn't see him for about uh, three hours. Uh, and at the and what he would do is that when he practiced, you know, a lot of people will hit like four or five or six balls and they'll kind of stop and they'll kind of rest a little bit or they'll, they'll putz around with a club. I mean, he is just rapid fire. I mean, when he tries to make a change, he is just trying to drill down into it and he's like boom, 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 mm -hmm. boom. Yeah, yeah. Like he might peel off like 50 shots in a row and he is really hitting balls. So. He would be hitting balls up there for like three hours, and those are longer hits. And then he'd like go over to the the practice green where the sand bunkers were, and you could hit a few short shots. I mean, he'd work on his short shots for like about an hour and a half, and then he'd break. He'd come in for lunch like about 12:30 to 1:30, mm -hmm. and then he'd take off again. He'd go back up to the green. He'd be in the bunkers, and he'd work in the bunker for probably about an hour. And I've been in them for that yeah, long, you, you, I think, yeah. while I was out playing. While you were out playing. Yeah, uh -huh, yeah. <laughs> then he'd go and uh, he'd come in for a, a, a slight little break, and then he would go out. And the good thing about Tom is that he always played. You can't just practice. You've got to play. Mm -hmm. And so he would go out and find somebody, one of the members, groups that were out there, that maybe there were only two or three or four of them, and he'd join them, and he'd play three or four or five holes with, with the yeah. group, mm -hmm. which was fun. Sure. And it was good for him, too. And then he'd come in and he'd, he'd, you know, he'd grab a snack and then he'd go to the green and I mean he'd be out there for three hours. Well, that was his day. It was a full day of work. I mean, it was yeah. it, it was unbelievable how you could just like, you know, he was a real professional, and I could see not only how he he was a pro, but you know, for four years in a row, he's the best golfer in the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, I heard stories, and I don't know if they were true or not, that during the winter he would be in the clubhouse and be driving balls out. He'd open the doors just a little bit and drive balls out of the clubhouse as he was in there. Ever hear anything like that? Or is that a uh, rumor that's floating around there? That no. Um, okay, so uh, down in the, where the swimming pool was, yeah. in the uh, cafe, the eating area, the club would put in like a three-dimensional uh, hitting, not a net, but it was canvas. Mm -hmm. It was solid. And uh, then they had the AstroTurf down there so that some of the members could go down there and hit. Well, Tom would go down there and hit. And in the pool cafe, they had these sliding doors that were facing out to the south, which was towards the, the hitting range. But there were all kinds of, there, you know, there were huge 60, 70, 80, 90-foot trees all over the place. Mm -hmm. And then they had these, these pillars that were in the design work out on the, the patio that were outside the sliding doors. Okay, so the sliding doors would open up and they'd probably have an opening of maybe like about five feet. Okay, so they were, they were pretty good size. But then these pillars were on the other side and that haven't had an opening of maybe 36 inches. Okay, so Tom comes in one day, stands out of town, he's down in Florida uh, playing in the PGA Club Pro. And he says, come on, I've got I've to hit some balls. So I would go down and, you know, the pros have to have somebody watch him hit. So I go down and help him work on his game a little bit. So he's like hitting at the net and he's hitting, 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 and we're talking about a few things. And then he stops and the next thing I know, he takes this mat and he turns it around. Okay, and I'm wondering, well, you know, what are you going to do with that? And so then he goes over and he opens the cafe doors. Okay. I mean, this is, this is like February, so it's like 20 degrees outside. Mm -hmm. And we really weren't dressed for it. So he turns around and he grabs a ball and he says, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit this way. 
So, you know, so I'm getting, you know, taking up a position so I can watch him hit. I'm behind him and I'm looking at that opening and I'm like, wow. Okay, here we go. And he just starts firing balls right through here and he's got them going up over the trees and out. I don't even, you, you couldn't even see where they were going. Wow. <laughs> I mean, there was no way. So I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, it's seven iron, you know, he's hitting a seven iron, he's hitting a five iron, that's okay. Well, he pulls out a driver. Uh oh. And I'm like, okay, well, wow, I wonder if he's ever done this before. <laughs> so he hits the first one and boom, I mean, it's just, it's right through the middle of it. I mean, it wasn't even close. Yeah. And so then I kind of relaxed a little bit and thought, wow, I mean, he really is, I mean, it's, he's the best player in the world. <laughs> I, can, I can see why. I mean, my gosh, this is crazy. I mean, which I would not have tried that. And that was the guy you had a standing bet with right. every day. Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah, <laughs> try to beat him. Wow, that uh, was crazy. So, yeah, but he, he was phenomenal. He did another deal one year where Sports Illustrated was doing a, a piece on him. Mm -hmm. And the photographer came out. They went out to uh, number 16. And the T at 16 was an elevated T. So, you know, it dropped down in front of the tee. You know, because it was the off season, we'd go out and we'd help Tom with whatever he needed to help with. And we went out to the 16th tee with him, and it was just myself and the photographer, and he and Tom had one of the kids out of the bag room come up uh, to kind of help him with, with caddying a little bit with clubs and cleaning him off and stuff like that. So the photographer says, okay, so I want to get a tee shot and Tom tees up and he starts hitting off the tee and this guy's like circling around. The next thing I know, this guy goes in front and he is on a little bit of this, uh, this decline mm -hmm. and he is like shooting a shot that is directly in line with the ball okay. in front of you. Wow. And I'm thinking, well, surely he's not going to hit a ball. Tom tees this thing up and lets it fly. And this, I mean, it just it, it literally has to fly over the guy's head. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, any, I would think that, that not only for the photographer, but anybody that was hitting the ball would be so nervous that they'd hit it straight right so that they could miss the guy. He didn't, he didn't flinch. He just kept firing ball after ball. The guy kept getting closer and closer, and finally he said, that's, that's close enough. Mm because of the child knew that the exact trajectory he was going to hit the ball wow with. and he wasn't hitting this ball it had to have been like like the closest he got that i could tell because you can't really see it when it's going that fast you can hear it though mm -hmm. yeah and so i could hear that thing it was about a foot over the guy's head it was, it was incredible wow. the guy the photographer that guy had a lot of guts i'll say i mean i don't know what he'd been doing before that but that had to have been I mean, he, he didn't even flinch. It's wow. pretty unbelievable. There must have been some scotch involved or something. <laughs> <laughs> pretty rough duty. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, Dick, let's go downstairs. Uh, uh, is it time already? Yeah, I'm thirsty. I could use a drink. You know, probably. <laughs> hey, me but, too. But uh, I got to warn you that that old wino that hangs out down in the corner, he's, he's down in the lounge. Yeah. Oh. Oh, really? What's going on? He's all excited about uh, some new place opening in the Power and Light, Guy Fieri. Oh, Guy Fieri's place. Tacos yeah. and oh, something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Power and Light District. He's playing the old. He's playing an old bunch of old records and singing about it. So, mm. well, anyway. Hey, here, here he is. Oh, uh-oh, here comes the lyrics. Well, hey there, all you women. See this smile upon my face? It says I like tacos and I like to party. That's why I love this place. Nothing gets me frisky like some tacos and some whiskey. Can't help it if I got good taste. You may call me Whiskey Tango, but you would only be half right. Cause I'm a Whiskey Taco feller, and I'm a going out tonight. Well, Guy Fieri's coming now, so everything is humming. Thanks to Cordish and the Power and Light. 
Whew, what a party. Only 10 million bucks a year. Thank you. I'll have a taco at your earliest convenience. Uh, let's get back with more The Golf Guy, Gene Barlow. So you hung out with some other guys. There were some. You had some experiences with some other pros in some kind of business, developing courses and things like that. Yeah, we did a little bit of that. Uh, we kind of like got into golf course design. It kind of started for me back in the late 80s, uh, right before I went to uh, Deer Creek. Got started in on it because of the uh, agronomist at Kansas City Country Club, whose name was Bill Spence. Mm -hmm. They had hired Bill the same time that they had hired me as the assistant, and they brought him in from Pebble Beach because the golf course wasn't in very good shape, and so Bill had to do a complete overhaul. And Bill was, was from New Jersey, so he had a lot of experience with different types of grasses. I'd go out with Bill, and you know, he'd, he'd start like, I mean, he'd just tear everything up and just start over again. So he, he'd tell me about irrigation, you know, how it works, and uh, soil content, and, and contours, and things like that, and mm -hmm. kind of got interested in it, and then, you know, read a couple of things, and then uh, Bill had uh, Reese Jones come in and do a 10-year plan for the golf course so that they didn't, wouldn't just piecemeal things together. They, mm -hmm. They'd have a reason for doing things over a 10-year period. And I got to know Reese, and, um, you know, we, we talked quite a bit. He was the nicest guy, and he was happy to share things with you. And so we'd, we'd spend some time because he was from New Jersey, too, and that's where Bill knew him mm -hmm. uh, and got into that. So that kind of parlayed into, like, we had a found a piece of ground and started piddling around with it and kind of drew a golf course on it and kind of got started in that, and that never got put together, but it did uh, was the beginning, actually, of Shadow Glen. Wow, um, great course. There were, there were like eight or ten guys, businessmen in Kansas City, and Tom was one of part of the group that kind of wanted to be in on the birth of a new club mm -hmm. and kind of be a second club for them. And uh, we had kind of put that together, and so we had done the groundwork on this other thing, and then the Sunderlands were doing, had all this ground because of the concrete. You know, it was pretty rocky and rugged, but it was out. And I guess Kent had gone to uh, Muirfield Village, which was Nicholas's project, and like that, and came back and told his dad he thought that that's what they should do with part of the property. And they were going to get Nicholas to help them out and do it, but then Nicholas uh, had some problems back in 85 and couldn't quite pull it off. So uh, actually uh, somebody came in and, and approached, asked me, they said, hey, you know, the, the uh, Kent Sutherland's wanting to do this thing and his brother Charlie and they're wondering, you know, if, if Watson can get involved or what you guys are doing or so we just kind of like got together and kind of put the thing together and that's what got it all started. So went to Tom. Tom, separate from the group, helped design with Weisskopf and Jay Morris, who Jay Morris and Weisskopf were just a team, and they were the Astro wanted them to put that thing together, and it was just a kind of a really funny story that Bill Fromm was one of the the guys that was in the group. Wow, I didn't know that. And Bill, the ad guy. Yeah. So Bill calls up further into the process one day and says, hey, I got a, I got a call from, uh, from the Sunderland office and uh, they, are, they got in touch with Jay Morris about Tom Watson getting involved on the design team. And Jay said, hey, I'm going to have to call Tom Weisskopf because he's my partner in this. I guess Jay called him back and, and them back and said, hey, you know, that Tom Weisskopf doesn't want to do that. That's, we're, we're the architectural team, and if you want us to do it, we'll do it. But we don't, you know. Tom, you know, he's a great guy, but he's not going to do it. And so then they, so that's where From. They, then they call From. So then From calls me and tells me this, and he says, "Well, what do you think about that?" And I, I said, "I got to tell you, nobody cares about Tom Weisskopf. I think what you should do is go back there and, and tell the Sunderlands that, tell, tell Jay Morris you're going to get a different architect." And so they, they said, yeah, we got to have Tom. And so they did. They went back and they told Morris that, hey, you know, we've decided that it's just not going to work out. We're going to go in another direction. 
And he goes, well, what do you mean? And he goes, we're going to get a different architect. And he said, okay. And about 15 minutes later, Bill gets a call. And he said, okay, we're, we're good to go. Uh, Tom Weisskopf said that they totally misunderstood what he was saying, and he would love to have Tom on the team. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and if anybody knows Tom Weisskopf, they know that's a lot of BS because <laughs> the guy's pretty cantankerous. Wow. Yeah, so that's he, how. He, he clocked some time at the buzzard back then. Yeah. I remember yeah. he was in town and some of the stories yeah yeah so uh that was kind of a funny deal so but that's how shadow glenn got got uh put together my guy wow you were involved in a whole lot of deals in the beginnings of a lot of oh, crazy. things that shaped kansas city's golf scene crazy probably too much so well you know uh you also got a you represent a, a line of some really cool high-end products that you sell all over the country that are kind of associated with golf tournaments and things oh yeah yeah what's what's that all about oh well, that's, i mean i've uh, seen some of it it's great i in fact this this yeah, pad you still came have the book i see here yeah we do these kinds of things these little folios but it's high-end beautiful buttery leather looking yeah. products yeah yeah it's a company that uh, a buddy of mine uh several years ago called up and said hey i ran into this group that has some rather unique things and they're trying to get into golf a little bit and I think you ought to call them up and talk to them. It's a real nice outfit. They were out of Dallas. They actually own the manufacturing uh, plant that's in Shaman, China. And uh, it's two guys uh, and I talked to one and they said, hey, you know, you've been like buying this stuff for us for, for a while. Okay. For tournament pro awards. For, for and our things. tournaments. Yeah. We were buying them for our tournaments because it's not golf stuff. And as we talked about earlier, a lot of these people don't even play golf that are mm -hmm. playing in it. They play one or two times. So they're happy to get, like, business accessories mm -hmm. or something sure. like that, yeah. which is a little different for them. We did that for a couple of years. I, I just sold in this area for them. And they finally called up one day and, and said, uh, hey, you know, we're, we're trying to expand this a little bit because you're doing pretty well. We'd like for you to come in and talk to us and get your ideas since you've got the background in golf. And so then that's when they said, hey, we want you to be the national guy. You, know, you can go out and get your reps. You can do whatever you want to do and just tell us how you want to do it. But, you know, we want to get into the golf business full time. So they were doing the U.S. Open. We did, we did uh, gifts at the Masters. Uh, I do stuff at the Ryder Cup, the PGA of America, PGA Tour. And then we do a lot of things with private clubs they can afford our stuff because it's mm -hmm. not that inexpensive. But because it's so unique, where, uh, Dick, you can see that we take a fabric liner on all of our products. Right. Uh huh. And we can take a logo and we'll do it in a step and repeat pattern. Oh, sure. On the fabric. Inside and nobody else cover. can do that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, those factories over there, generally, when you're doing custom made products, you know, you're ordering like a thousand pieces at a time. Mm -hmm. We do 24. Oh. So that makes it quite easy for people to do business and use our products. So wow. this stuff is really, uh, it's distinctive. It's, the company's called Barrington. Barrington. And I've seen at the tournaments everything from little, like, uh, billfolds or uh, cigar cutter holders, wine, smaller items like that, all the way up to big beautiful duffel bags and oh yeah we do golf accessories we do travel things. bags we do small bags we do uh, both uh, personal and business accessories mm -hmm. uh, the thing that we've really gotten into are totes ladies totes okay. and crossbodies sure um, we're getting a pretty good reputation because it's so well made mm -hmm. uh, and that's unusual at, at women's uh, an event for women or either women that are playing in the event, you know, they just have to get exactly what anybody else gets. But in some of our events, we can actually do it where we can order like like 10 or 12 pieces that are just customized for the gals. Oh, yeah. And then yeah. we can do the, the stuff, the normal stuff for the guys. Well, that's definitely an element you bring to these tournaments that really sets them apart. And I know that some of the people you work with when you're doing especially these larger tournaments that have so many moving parts you work with 
companies, uh, caterers that are very experienced at the golf tournament business and do some of the big ones across the country. Talk about the other people that you cooperate with when you're putting on a big tournament. Well, we like to do uh, food out on the golf course while people are playing. And mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be a full-blown meal or anything like that. It's just a kind of a quick grab and go, and it's a you know a glorified snack is what it is. Sure. And uh, you know Calderellos has always been a, a, a nice brand here in Kansas City, and we partnered up with them a couple of three years ago, and so they'll we'll, we'll have their sausages and then we'll have the buns and we'll just have a bag of chips and maybe a cookie and we'll have the grill out there and we'll have those Italian sausages grilling out. It smells great on the golf course. Oh, and course. they're delicious. I had and some of those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Didn't, aren't I they did. great? And it's, yes. just a, it's just a quick, you know, grab and go. Mm -hmm. And it kind of keeps you tied it over. You know, it's better than, you know, eating a candy bar. Or well, it's not necessarily like grab that. and go because it's a, I've had one now. Do I hang around and have another one? <laughs> yeah. I'll yeah, see. they're great. <laughs> yeah, we do have sometimes have some carts circled back. You got any more of those? Uh, and we do those. So... You know, and that's being able to do that at some of the golf courses. They don't like you to do that, but you know, there's there's ways around that uh, where you can work with a golf course, and that's some of what we bring yeah. to the to the table also. Because you know, they have a food and beverage operation also, mm -hmm. and you know, they count on that revenue and they uh, budget that into their numbers. So, speaking of food out on the golf course, I played uh, a Spelman golf tournament up at Paradise Point years ago. Oh, yeah. And, that was a uh, great tournament. And Lloyd played with me also. And they had hard liquor about every other hole. Yeah, they did. Oh, and, my uh, God. They, they set up yeah. uh, more mm -hmm. bars. And, yeah. Oh, it was something. And I played one year with David Lawrence, the radio uh, legendary guy. And he and I were in the cart and uh, hit the, the bars every two holes. And there's a, a rumor going around that we drove a golf cart into the lake. And I, oh, my God. I have denied that. It was just the front wheels we put in. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Dick. Just the front wheels wow <laughs> oh boy but well you caught it just in time yeah huh? that stuff out on the course that you're doing is great it, it's a good opportunity to have a more of a good time out on the course so. yeah and we started doing a game out there um where we we came up with this thing where you, you you can raise money and you can speed up play we called it go for the ace mm -hmm. and so what happened was is that we charge each player like essentially two dollars and fifty cents or like ten dollars a team something like that you can do it 10, 20. And so they, they would be in, and we'd do that at the beginning of the round. And we'd have somebody out there with the names. But if, if all the players teed off and any one player of the team, actually their ball came to rest on the green, they made a one and they were done. Oh, okay. They could just finish the yep. hole. Wow. So all of a sudden, okay, so you've got a par three. You're going to figure that if they make a par, and there's four players, that's 12 shots. Okay, well, if they only hit two shots, yep. all right, and it, let's just say that it doesn't take this long, but let's just use one minute to hit a shot. Okay, that would have taken two minutes to do that. On a regular round, if they all played the hole out, it would have taken them at least 12 mm -hmm. just to hit their shots. I've seen it work. Yeah, and it really moves play around. So then that leads into it's very tricky if you're not careful that all of these people will start stacking up on the hole in front of that because it's playing so quickly. Okay, sure. So you have to figure out how to uh, arrange the different groups out on the golf course to make that actually flow right into the to the course of the round. Wow. You know, we thought it was just a game. There's a lot of <laughs> a lot of a logistics lot of going involved. on. Oh in this yeah, thing, man. A lot of, lot of fun. A lot of, so, lot of fun. So all these moving parts, but what a great opportunity for businesses to have a feel-good promotion. Bring bring their vendors and their clients and and their co-workers and everybody together. And it's a great thing for foundations. They get publicity. They raise money. Everybody has a big day. But obviously, it. It's very helpful to have somebody like Gene taking care of all this stuff and helping you figure out how do I promote it and to kind of make it a turnkey event. Uh, is this a realistic thing? I mean, can you basically, if, if I'm a business person or run a foundation and I say, you know, really love to be a part of this scene and, and are you a turnkey guy? Do I just pick up the phone and call you and say, hey, man, I want a tournament and... And you'll put it all together? 
Uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, we can do that. And, um, you know, one of the things, though, that's difficult from our position is the fundraising side of it. Because we, we do so many events, we will not mix those solicitation lists. Even though we know who's playing mm -hmm. and we have the contact information because we have to get in touch with all these people before they the day they play because we want to make sure they know where it is and what they're going to have to expect for the day. But some people will mix those lists up and start like coming from one side of it and then, hey, why don't you play in this event too? Uh, I got you. Can't, mm -hmm. we, 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 we don't do that. Yeah. Right. Um, that's, that's our client's list and they keep that. So, so you have a confidential arrangement with each tournament and there's right. no crossbreeding going There's on no cross-pollination cross there no cross-pollination going on there whatsoever so that leads into the biggest function of a an event committee is the fundraising side of it mm -hmm. so you've got to have people on there that know people that can like pick up the phone and say hey Lo, I want you to play in this event it's going to be like fifteen hundred dollars uh, you're going to get four players and this is what you're supporting or they right. they come in there and they, they'll just say, hey, Dick, I want you to sit on this committee. Here's what we'd like you to do for us. Mm -hmm. You know, can you make a couple of phone calls and bring in some of your buddies to play uh, in the event that day? And But outside of that, we do the rest of it. But now a few years ago, you I worked with you on a tournament that we developed for a private business. And their take on it was we wanted to bring a lot of our customers and vendors together and throw a nice, fun tournament and try to make it essentially just a revenue neutral deal. So not every one of these big tournaments has to be a fundraiser or a charitable thing. You, I mean, there are companies that make this a part of their regular social calendar just to bring them, and they'll charge their uh, associates whatever the costs are and just add as much value as they can and make it a, you know, make it a great experience. and. And year after year, I know the one that we developed has just continued to grow. And so there are a lot of different approaches you can take, but I'm a total believer in in having a golf tournament to uh, publicize your business and to, to enrich all the connections that you have. And I think going with somebody like Gene Barlow, who can take care of all these moving parts is a smart thing to do because mm -hmm. yeah. I mean there are a lot of ways to drop the ball if you have if you haven't had a lot of experience mm -hmm. at it yeah well yeah it just leads into you know the golf courses once again going back to you know they they do an excellent job of getting you out there and getting you on the golf course and kind of taking the names and things like that but you know they can only do so much mm -hmm. and you can help people choose a venue right oh yeah we know all the pros we know all the golf courses we know you know we try to get an idea of, of what the level of play is going to be and we try to understand what like a corporation is trying to do so for instance I mean it, it, it can be tied into like before they go off you can make a presentation uh, and have a meeting uh, especially if you've got people in from out of town but then, you know, it's always a good good thing that if you've got people coming in from around the country for a large event, that you know, get them out to your plant or get them to the office or have a cocktail party prior to the event to yeah, the golf yeah, tournament. Yeah, We've done absolutely. that before, because and that's you, successful. You guys have played in these things, and you you know that after the event's over with, I mean, after being at the golf course for five or six hours because you've like checked in, you've gone to the range, you've practiced, you've putted, mm -hmm. yeah. you've gone out and played, and now you're at the end of the deal. You've had one beer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you maybe had two. Yeah, maybe you just had a soda or something. That's right. And you, you know, so you're not you're you're not wanting to stay, you know, another two or three hours. Yeah, it's golf carts it, in the parking lot and trunks up. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah. you know, our threshold at the end of the deal is about forty five minutes. Yeah. Because they're going to leave either way. You know, the got the people want to stay that are going to win, and uh, there's nothing else to keep them there. So you can't get too crazy about what you're doing after the thing's over with because you just lose it. I've always been a little fatigued when after the golf tournament you had lunch then and an award ceremony. 
got to watch what you put on afterwards. Mixed right. with the yeah. shame and embarrassment. That's right, yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah those kind of stories aren't the ones that are being shared. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, Gene, uh, but also, I mean, after the tournament, you the company, your foundation, whatever it is you're doing, you've got an opportunity then to to touch base online with all these people to with video and photographs that you know to get people to continue that connection and then you immediately begin framing it for the next tournament and and start selling the next year I guess and it becomes a just a great way to keep in contact with all those folks. Sounds good. Well, thanks for the great stories, Gino. Well, I appreciate you guys having me in. It's fun to visit with you. How do you uh, how do people get in touch with you guys? Uh, you know, my, I'm easily accessible. Uh, 913-208-2117 is my cell number, and you can catch me anytime. And tell us what it's called again, your company. Grand Slam Golf. All right, okay. and, the, and, and look at those Barrington products, too. Yeah, so. absolutely. They're fun. All right, Gene, thanks a lot. Thank you, Dick. See you out on the course. Thank you, Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, Gene. Well, I probably should update that. Uh, I'll see uh, you and Loy, Gene, out on the course as I try to hit out of some place where no one's ever been on the course. You know, I, I don't know, just like Gene, I was involved in developing golf courses also. Uh, they would take me out to an open field, have me hit a drive, and wherever my ball landed, that's where they put the woods. You might love it. You might hate it. It's my favorite freaking show. 